Hello, this is Josh Anderson, CAS, with another In Conversation episode with production sound mixer Larry Hoff, CAS. For over 40 years, Larry has worked in production sound on documentaries, commercials, reality TV, films, and television. Since 2002, he's primarily worked on narrative television in New York, on such notable shows as Law & Order, Fringe, Bull, and The Night Of, which earned him an Emmy for sound mixing in 2017. Here is my conversation with Larry Hoff, CAS. Do you want to start in the order of your questions, or do you want to start with something else? Actually, I, I want to start by mentioning when we first worked together uh, in the summer of 2001. I was going to earn enough money on the job to buy my first substantial piece of equipment, and I was trying to decide between an MKH60 mic and a PSC mixer, so I asked you for some advice on what to buy. Uh, but the answer I got from you, which was... Certainly not what I was expecting. Um, But what you told me to do was to go to Sam Ash Pro, buy a bunch of cable parts, and learn to make cable adapters. Wow. And I've told that story many times to younger sound people, so it's obviously a bit of advice I've taken to heart. I don't remember that at all. (laughs) That's okay. okay. (laughs) Uh, But but that's why I wanted to talk to you, Mm. because I know a lot of your history is beyond the plug and play, and this is the gear we have. But getting into the challenges of recording the best tracks we can on set. It's not the gear that makes the sound man. It's the sound man. Doesn't matter the gear. It's the sound man, you know? Yeah. So let's start with the early part of your career. All right. Yeah, I'll start with something. So in 1975, I applied to uh, Local 52 to join the IAA. Took the test, took about an hour. Very simple, I'm sure I asked it. I uh, got put on the ballot. Uh, if you paid whatever the fee was, is that you could be on the ballot twice. Uh, so I was on the ballot twice, never got voted in. And uh, then in the back of my mind, I decided to, I should join NABIT, but I didn't really know anything about NABIT. I didn't know much about the IA, except that you know I had met a couple of people who were members and seemed to me that that was the place to be. It was more of a, you know, I had a bigger track record. In the meantime, I was doing uh, industrials, um, and uh, I used to do uh, pieces for 60 minutes. I met a producer, his name is Warren Wallace, and we would do a thing like uh, we'd go fly fishing in Canada, or we would do uh, a show, an exhibit in the Metropolitan Museum. Uh, before they opened to the public, we would shoot the show and he would be a sort of a guided tour. Of, this is what New Met Show is and stuff like that. Uh, they were all obviously one-man shows. I mean, one-man sound team. Um, I had a Niagara 3, had a 415 microphone, and I owned one wireless mic, a Vega. If I needed two, I'd go rent the second one. I had a couple of cables and a pair of headphones, and that was my gear. You know, I didn't even own a harness. I used to, you know, wear the the thing, you know, across my shoulder. And, and I, that's how it would work. I filled in for Larry Lowinger, uh, was doing a really no-budget feature film. That pay was like $75 a day for me and the equipment. And he got a real job for a week. So I filled in for him. I hadn't met him before, but that's how I met him. We talked a bunch of times over the next few months, and then one day he called me and said, 
we're starting a sound class that's um, being given by Jerry Brock. And I didn't know who Jerry Brock was at the time. Um, they had guaranteed to Jerry that they would pay $10 a piece and guaranteed him, I think, either $80 or $90, you know, for each class. So they needed, you know, eight or nine people okay. to pay the $10 each. I think he thought that, uh, you know, I was an idiot that would just sort of fill a chair. That's sort of, he called me sort of in desperation, just was enough people. So I was one of those people. I went on to learn that Jerry Brock was vice president of the Audio Engineering Society, and he was the importer of ship's microphones, and there were a number of things that he invented. He went on to invent some version of 5.1 sound and uh, was brilliant. Um, He went to Boulder, Colorado every year for many years to record symphonies, um, Mahler symphonies. Hmm. Um, He did uh, church organs. He did television commercials, but his bread and butter, besides selling equipment, he was the importer of Shep's microphones. And, you know, all the equipment too, but his bread and butter was doing transfers. And because of who he was, every soundman in New York, if they could, would get producers to send their, their tracks to Jerry. Because if there was an issue like a hum or a buzz or something wasn't quite right, they'd send a note to Jerry and say, please fix this. Mm. And he would work all night doing transfers and uh, send them out in the morning, uh, you know, either 16 or 35, whatever. So anyway, that's how I met Jerry Brock, taking his class. Um, I never wanted to be a sound person before that. I owned equipment. It was a job. It was something to do. I wanted to be in the film business. I just thought it was a temporary thing. I just thought, well, I can make some money at it while I'm going to become, you know, a DP or director or producer or something. Hmm. Jerry had a huge passion for sound. It was intoxicating. Listening to him, having him show me stuff, uh, getting to hear some of his recordings. He had a listening room with one chair. And I said to him, but only one person said, he said, there's only one spot in the room that you can listen to this correctly. And one day he played a Mahler symphony for me that he had recorded. And I felt like it was better than being there live. It's like I could feel the music through my whole body. It was such an intoxicating experience. I was in awe. I thought, oh my God, if I could do this, this would be amazing. What an amazing life I could have to do this that he was offering. Hmm. That class lasted about nine months and sort of fizzled out. But he started with, this is the anatomy of a microphone. And he went to what is a meter and what are levels and what's frequency and on and on and on. Um, After taking the the course with Jerry Brook, because one of the things that uh, several of us kept asking Jerry is, we'd like to learn the electronics of what's inside an arm. And that wasn't his thing. He wasn't really an electronics guy. He was more of a microphone and designer guy. And we, so I forgot who found him, but somebody found another guy who did things like repair Nagras or amplifiers and, you know, sort of was that guy. And so we did the same thing with him. We hired him and said, we'd pay you $10 a piece for once a week. And, we did these classes for about three months with him. 
And out of that, I was the only one who really kept pursuing it. I started building uh, circuits and amplifiers and headphone amplifiers and stuff like that. And so I'd go back to him and show it to him and ask him, you know, well, what about this? What about that? And he thought I was this sort of funny kid and kind of brought me along and said, oh, yeah, yeah, you do this, you do that and stuff like that. So that's how I learned how to make cables, adapters and stuff like that was from him. Obviously, at that time, the main recorder that everybody used was a Nagra. Around that time, I traded in my Nagra 3 for Nagra 4.2. I had that Nagra 4.2 for 17 years, one track. And that's really, you know, I mean, I took that Nagra everywhere. I went to India to do Mother Teresa. I went to the coal mines in West Virginia. That Nagra went, went with me everywhere. I did feature films with it. I did uh, commercials, did everything with that one machine for 17 years. I remember thinking how difficult this was, how technically complicated it was when I first started, like dealing with impedance issues and ground issues and having to sometimes take the Nagra, um, I take a piece of wire to the case of the Nagra and go to the, um, an outlet cover, uh, you know, on the wall mm -hmm. to ground the machine because it was getting so much RF through the building, like in Empire State Building, for instance, or some place like that mm -hmm. a lot of susceptible stuff to uh, rf interference but basically it was bulletproof you know every year i'd send it in to be to be worked on frank haber who i later became friends with uh lived in the upper west side and was probably one of the best nagra repair people in the united states so i sent it to frank every year every spring usually you grew up in new york right and were movies a big part of your childhood I was born in Brooklyn. Um, I lived in Queens and Nassau County and later Manhattan. When I was 10, 11, 12, we lived in Queens and the only theater was in Flushing and you had to take a bus to Flushing. It was about a 20 minute uh, bus ride. And so my parents would love to get rid of me every Saturday afternoon or as many Saturday afternoons as they could and myself and two or three friends. We'd go to the movies and watch a double header, you know, two movies and cartoons. I think it was 50 cents <laughs> for admission for that. So I was good for at least two hours, you know? Um, and then I'd buy a slice of pizza and I would go home on the bus. And it all for like a dollar. I watched a lot of movies uh, then as a kid. When did you start having an interest in film production? I, um, was working in a bookstore, uh, the Strand Bookstore on Broadway and 12th Street. It's a used bookstore. And uh, I got this idea that I should do something artistic. And so I decided that I should become a still photographer. I had gone to Hunter College and to uh, CW Post, which was out on Long Island, each for a semester. I didn't really think that I was going to pursue college. And I started looking up places to take still photography classes so I could actually learn the technical end of it. And my mother, who graduated NYU as, as a teacher, said to me, why don't you go to NYU because they have a, uh, a school of the arts. First, I didn't think I'd get into NYU, but even if I could, you know, it sounded like way too complicated. All I just wanted to learn was some 
you know, things about lenses, like go to college seemed way too complicated. Mm -hmm. But I applied and I got an interview with the dean. And much to my surprise, he actually let me in. NYU was $1,200 a semester when I went there. <laughs> so you can see how long ago that was. I convinced my father to pay for the tuition. So he said yes. Now, I had an apartment on Lower East Side at that time anyway, because I was working and paying for myself. And so mm -hmm. I said to him, I would uh, continue to you know, pay my living expenses if he would pay the tuition. And he agreed to that. Eventually, one of the jobs I got was uh, working in the equipment room. Mm -hmm. I liked the machines. I've always liked machines. Mm -hmm. So I like I liked the cameras. I like to figure out how the cameras worked. And I was editing a, a film in the editing bay, and this guy came over to me and said, I need a Nagra. I said, it's 10 o'clock at night. I said, well, no, I need it now. I mean, you know, you know, the room is locked up. I said, yeah, you, if you want it, you have to be there by six. It's 10 o'clock at night. I'm editing. He said, well, just can you give me the Nagra and I'll leave you alone? So I opened up the room. I looked him up and sure enough, he was supposed to get a Nagra. So I got it out. I handed it to him. I gave him the instruction manual. I was about to lock the door. And he said, well, can you show me how it works? I had no idea how it worked. So he and I lay on the floor in the, in the hallway, probably for the next three hours, reading the instruction manual together, learning how to use this thing. And in the end, I gave it to him. He went away and I went home and went to bed. He was successful. And then he started to tell people, oh, Larry is a, is a sound genius. You should hire him to do your sound on his, on your, you know, your student film. He knows all about this thing. And people would come up to me and say, could you do sound on my film? I went, seriously? I don't know anything about this. So anyway, I did sound on a couple of movies, never thinking much about it. And then one of the jobs I got also was being a teacher's assistant for one of the classes, I don't remember, but I did, I transferred from quarter inch to 16 mag was something I learned how to do because I, I did it for students. They weren't allowed to do it themselves. So I learned how to do it and then they would come to me and I would do that for them. So when I was a senior, I was editing a film for um, uh, independent study. And because it was independent study, I couldn't get early editing time. So sometimes I'd edit from like, you know, one to four in the morning or something. Like that. Mm. So it was taking forever. And my sister was involved in the making of the film. And she said to me, you know, that she knew somebody who was an assistant editor and I could should talk to her about getting editing space there. And I went to visit her and she introduced me to her boss. His name was Hans Dudelheim. It's one of those names you never forget. And uh, Hans was screaming at himself because he was trying to put in air conditioners. He rented this office space where he had editing rooms, like eight editing rooms. And because it was getting uh, close to summer, he needed to put air conditioners in each room. And not only did he not know how to do that, but he was terrible at it. So he said to me, you know how to put in air conditioners? I thought, you got an instruction manual? I said, yeah. I said, then I know how to put in air conditioners. I said, you put in the air conditioners, you can edit here for free after six o'clock for the rest of your life. Six o'clock was early for me. So I did. I They knocked off for work and I used his machine and I, you know, uh, edited a uh, movie. And I asked him 
a few weeks later, if I could use, he had a 16 dubber and an Ivor 3. Uh, and I asked him if I could uh, transfer some sound effects. He said, you know how to use that? And I said, yeah. And I showed him I knew how to use it. He said, you want a job? I said, why? He said, because I need stuff transferred, you know, like probably six or eight hours every week. We have stuff coming in. I always send it out because I don't know how to use this thing. It's just sitting here. So I did. I began transferring for him. So I worked for him, I think, $25 a day or something like that. He paid me. He got a job um, producing a commercial. And he said to me, you be the sound man. And I said, no. And he said, you know, I'll pay you $50. And, you know, you can use the Nagra that's in the back. Uh, you just need to rent a microphone. And he sort of pushed me into it. And I said, okay. So I went and to camera service and rented a microphone. Then I said, by the way, how do you use this thing? And they showed me. And I did the commercial. I had no idea what I was listening for. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. I hung the microphone off of a grip arm. I knew it that much. And uh, it was like a 415 or something like that. I said to him very sort of like shyly the next day, does it sound any good? He said, this is great. This is amazing. And he started recommending me for sound jobs. That's how I got hooked up with the producer at 60 Minutes. I was a friend of his. So all of a sudden, I was a sound person, you know, and... Uh, having no clue how I got there or what I was doing at all. So what happens when you're unsuccessful in getting into the IA? Yeah, when I didn't get into the IA, um, Jerry, who was a member of NABIT, talked to me. Uh, I don't remember. There were a couple of the people in his class were already NABIT members. And, and, and I, and I guess, what is the difference, especially at this point, between the IA and NABIT? NABIT was the... Uh, the rejects or the offshoots. Um, when television started, it was live. So everything that happened in television was an IA job. Sound, camera, everything. When it began to be taped, the IA said, we don't want tape operators. That's not what we do. We're a film union. So the tape operators were not allowed to join the union. It started with the tape operators, then it became the editors, because the editors were using tape, they weren't using film. So it started to grow the number of, of uh, different positions that uh, were not allowed in the IA. So they formed their own union. In the late 60s, 67, 68, something like that, um, there were a number of guys doing documentaries, uh, camera people, sound people, electricians. And they wanted a union so they could get health coverage. And there was they were ejected by the IA. So they reached out to, to NABIT, and NABIT said, fine, you can form a film local in New York, which was Local 15, NABIT Local 15. By the way, the NABIT test took over eight hours to take. You know, where the IA test took an hour, the NABIT test was unbelievably complicated. But because Jerry Brock had written a lot of it himself, I aced the test. When I went, I, you had to take the written test, and then if you passed, you had to go in front of a committee. And I think they were sort of off-put by me, because, like, we never heard of you. We don't know anything about you. But you aced this test, like, you know, what are you doing here? You know, who are you really? I didn't, you know, I didn't know what to say to them. It was all just happened within a year's time. It's like, 
but yeah, I should be a sound person. And uh, I remember Mark Dichter said to me, you know, what's the most important thing you bring to the set? And I thought, headphones, microphones. He said, no, it's your ears. I went, ooh, okay. So I didn't pass the first time around. And I called Jerry and I said, I didn't pass. And he said, why? And I told him what happened. He said, I'll talk to Mark. So I came in the second time, six months later, and I passed. So I got into the union. Did you start out in Nabit as a boom operator? I didn't have any idea what a boom operator did. I'd only done one person jobs. I had a boom operator. For that time, I filled in for Larry Lowinger. He had a boom operator. And uh, was a nice woman. And I asked her, what do you do? She said, oh, I'll show you. And so she boomed and I watched her do it. And I went, this is weird, but okay. Um, so I really had no idea you know, what a set really was about, you know, in terms of narrative stuff. I visited a number of sets. It was one of the Nabit um, things before you join. Hmm. So when I joined Nabit, I called Larry Lowinger and a couple of other people who I sort of knew vaguely looking for boom work. And I got a couple of days working as a boom operator, not really knowing terribly much what a boom operator did. They had to kind of show me from the beginning. One of those people was John Hurst. John was very successful commercial mixer. I worked with him for a day or two, and he was, to say the least, not impressed. And then something broke, a uh, cable or something. I don't remember what it was. And I said, can I fix it for you? Do you have a soldering iron? He said, do you know how to solder? I said, yeah. He said, look, I have a bag of shit that has to be fixed. If you fix it, I'll teach you how to be a boom operator. It's a deal. I worked for him on and off for about 10 years. Um, and we became very close. He was like my big brother. He was 19 years older than me. John was not a technical guy. I don't know. He did not know how microphones work like Jerry did, or he did not know. You know, he could not describe to you all the polar patterns and all this stuff like that. He was a very practical guy. Hmm. He was the guy like uh, uh, somebody who's supposed to be drinking out of a pineapple for a commercial, and he put a lavalier in the pineapple, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And uh, I still remember we had this scene with two guys sitting on a couch, huge amount of headroom. There was a coffee table in front of him, and I said to him, listen, I'm going to get this and get that, and he said, to hide the microphone, coffee table, he said, nah. He took a Sheps and he put it in the cushion, pointing straight up in the air to the cardioid Sheps. He said, that's it. That's all we need. I thought, this is going to sound terrible. It sounded great. It just like freaked me out. Like it was, he, everything was simple. No, 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 don't make it complicated. This is real simple. Just stick a mic there, boom. And it sounded great. I went, holy shit. It can be that simple, hmm. you know? So yeah, he taught me a lot. He had boom for Dennis Maitland Sr. He right. done movies for him. Hmm. Yeah, he not only taught me how to be a boom operator, he taught me the business of, of working. He used to say things to me like, you can't bargain up, you know, when you're dealing with equipment rentals. Always start high, you can always go down, you can't bargain up. Right. When I had boomed for him about four or five years, he got so busy, he couldn't begin to cover all the jobs. And uh, so he started recommending me to mix. That's how I really became, uh, I became a mixer of sound commercials. So I would boom for him one day and go mix another one the next day and back and forth. And 
So we had a couple of shared clients or some new clients, stuff like that. I was so I went back and forth mixing and booming all through the 70s and early 80s. I did a couple of, of um, documentaries, also narrative stuff. Um, I boomed a bunch of um, after-school specials, and eventually I started mixing them. You know, along the way, I did things like I went to Belize. This was a live television broadcast. It was a satellite uplink from the uh, rainforest in Belize to about 30 or 40 um, museums and stuff like that. And it was going to be a live thing for kids. And the kids could talk to these scientists. The scientists would explain about different things in the rainforest. You know, so they could talk back and forth. Um, and uh, they hired a mixer who had done live television because they wanted a live television mixer. And then she, they said to her, well, how do you want to set this up? She said, I have no idea. I said, what do you mean? So I don't set anything up. I just walk in the truck and things set up for me. I've never set up anything. So I got a call when I go to Belize and uh, be the, for you know, what, what do we call it? The guy who, you know, solders the cables. You know, I, I went with pictures and stuff like that. And some of the equipment had been ordered, which I thought was horrendous decisions, but that was already too late for getting involved in that. And, I got a couple of thousand feet of XLR cable and probably 2,000 feet of 10 pair cable and with breakout boxes and fiber optic cable to feed the satellite. And we went to Belize. And, you know, I was there for a month. We made it work. And uh, it was, you know, it was a great experience doing stuff like that, you know, climbing trees in the, in the, um, Rainforest. I used to be able to climb trees. I know it's hard to believe now, but I did. You know, getting wireless mics to work in the you know in 100% humidity where it rains. I don't know stuff like that. Just uh, I'm just it was I, very grateful for all these different experiences I've had all over the world. Really, I've been very very lucky to do that. Were you so at this point? Were you taking a lot of out of town jobs? I had two kids by then. So I try to minimize going out of town. Um, sometimes it was an economic necessity, and sometimes it was just something that would sounded so amazing that I couldn't really turn it down. And like the Belize job, I said to him I would only go for the setup. Hmm. And uh, after they went on the air, they asked me if I would stay. So I called my wife and told her and she said please come home and i said okay so i went home right you know part of the problem for me after doing it for you know basically 20 years at that point um was the thing that really thrilled me is what i learned from jerry brook the art of sound the, the thing that you can do to make something really like shine the perfect seasoning on the stew, you know. I had, I had a DP say that to me. He said, the picture's the meal, but the sound is the seasoning. If you don't have the right seasoning, the meal is tasteless. And he wouldn't roll anything without sound. I, even if it was a close-up of a phone, he said, roll sound. We have to roll sound. So I did. You know, I thought, you know, if he's that adamant, I'm, well, who am I to say no? That's what I 
learn from Jerry. That was what I was passionate about. And I did so many jobs where they would like, we don't want to hear from you. We don't want to know from you. Just, you know, either wire everybody or just put a boom out there or whatever you got to do, just go away, leave us alone. Or you're shooting in a location that's impossible to, you know, shut everything down. And everybody says, well, do the best you can. So it started to really wear on me about that time. I guess I started to, to look for other things. I did a movie called Strictly Business that I mixed in 89, I think it was. Uh, 89 or 90. Halle Berry and uh, Tommy Davidson. Two-man crew, shot in New York, neighbor job, we had a contract. Um, it was, they really beat the shit out of us. Long days, you know, turnaround was always difficult. Uh, the whole crew was mistreated, not just me, everybody. From the DP on down, we were all just sort of beaten up by the, this job. I treated Halle Berry like shit. I used to go wire her in a dressing room and she'd be crying. So I really wanted to work on a big budget film. I thought, well, big budget films must be different. And I had never done that. So a few months later, we merged with the IA. And uh, I was on the, the merger committee. I was, you know, got very involved in that for a number of months. And uh, once the merger was solidified, I was talking to John Hurst on the phone. And I said, you know, Somebody really would like to do another, remember the, I like the third, because I'd never had a third. I didn't know what a third did. I like the third on a big budget movie. Because my idea in my back of my head was, oh, on a big budget movie, it's going to be really different. So he called me a few days later and said, you want to go third for Todd Maitland? I said, sure. So I did, a, I did this uh, film with Todd Maitland called uh, The Night in the City with uh, Robert De Niro. And... Uh, True to its name, it was a lot of lights. It was mm. tough shoot, February all nights and shit like that outside. It was a good experience for me in that I realized that a lot of it's the same shit. And a lot of it can be a different in a different kind of way, you know, in ways that I had never anticipated. That if they treat the whole crew like shit, the crew will, you know, in essence, fight back. You may not get a lot of respect as the sound department, but at least as a member of the crew, the IA crew, being a member of Local 52, uh, you had some say in, in what was done and how things were done. You know, I worked with all these people in, in Local 52 who I didn't know were the you know pinnacle people in mm -hmm. some ways. Tak Fujimoto was the DP, and you know he was certainly better than any DP that I'd ever worked with. I got a lot of... Um, uh, lattes or not, not, cappuccinos that's what he liked <laughs> he and tj uh, romero was the boom operator and uh, so big part of my job every time we went to a new location was where's the nearest cappuccino right so anyway it was that was great that, i learned a lot doing that you know they liked me in a certain way i mean you know they used to make fun of me and or, you know sort of kid me and stuff like that but you know as people often say you know they're making fun of you, it's because they like you. It's when they stop making fun of you, then you really work, have to worry. Todd was brilliant at getting the next job. He was sending out stuff, talking to people. I mean, the first day of shooting, he was already working on the next job. And sometimes the next two jobs. Two weeks into the shoot, Erwin Winkle was the director. 
and so it's Monday, it's week three or something like that. And he, and I, he said, oh, it's not going to be a long week. I said, how do you know? He said, well, because Friday, Erwin's going to the opera. I said, really? How do you know he's going to the opera? He said, because I'm going with him. Todd had bought opera tickets for him and his wife and for for Erwin and his wife. And they were going to the opera and we wrapped at seven o'clock so they could make an eight o'clock show. <laughs> so that was all good. But I knew that I had to find mixing jobs. and. Uh, because in January and almost all of February, we worked nights, I started going on interviews for jobs before I would go to work. And I got a call, which was a very strange call, from uh, the Bune and Murray people saying, um, we want you to come in, we understand that you can do everything. I didn't know what that meant. So I handed them my resume and they said, yeah, we understand you know how to do soap operas. I said, yeah, I've worked on soap operas. You know how to do news or documentaries. I said, yeah, I've done all that. I said, well, you're the only one we can find who's done all those things. This is what we want to do. And they described to me the first season of The Real World, which was a loft on Prince Street and Broadway. It was a two-story loft. And they were going to outfit it with a million different antennas and radio microceivers. And everybody in the loft was going to get wired. So they didn't want booms because they were going to be distracting. However, there were going to be three cameras on Triax cable. And each camera would have a person wrangling cables for them. So I thought, that's not distracting, but booms are. But I went with it. I went, okay, wire and play. We were going to have uh, an 8-track recorder, half-inch reel-to-reel 8-track recorder. And I think it was 10 or 11 videotape recorders so they could ISO and mix and whatever. And I was supposed to send different mixes. I said, fine. And I had them rent Crown PZMs. We put them all over the place. I gave the producers their own mixers. They could bring up any of the Crown PZMs that they wanted to, if they wanted to listen in one room or another. And all of this, they were like fascinated by it. You could do that? Yeah, you could do it. I said to the video guy as we were setting up, you know, because their idea was that these kids were going to stay in this uh, in this place for six months and never go out. They were going to order food, everything, but they would never leave the loft. That was the original idea as that was presented to me. So the video guy and I, as we're setting this up, because it took, I don't know, a month, five weeks, whatever, something like that. To, I said, this, you know they're going to go outside. He said, I know. I said, so what are we going to do about that? He said, we're going to order cameras where you could take the triax back off and put a you know a quarter, a three-quarter inch tape recorder on the back. We'll go portable. I said, great. So I ordered uh, portable receivers. So I figured, okay, if we leave, I, I could take a small mixer, take a, a couple of receivers and, you know, go and follow them around like you know we do and you know every other part of life you know when i tried to explain it to the producers they said no no that would never work so we were there about a week and the kids were sitting around and everybody was bored and they said fuck this shit and they went out to get pizza and the producers turned to us and said well that's a wrap and the video guy and i looked at them and said no we're gonna send out a crew outside to follow them around. And they said, can you do that? Yeah, of course you can do that. That's why you hired us. 
well, we don't think anything's going to come out of this, but okay. If you want to do a try, and then we'll talk about it tomorrow. Okay. So uh, one of the cameramen and I and a PA went out looking for them. We knew they were in a pizza place. Prince Street and Broadway, there's probably 20 pizza places within like a two block radius. And after about an hour, we found them. And we, they were sitting around a table and we started shooting them. And we shot them for, I don't know, an hour and a half maybe. Came back to the loft, left the tapes on the table, left a note for the producers. Um, I called them and left them voicemails just saying, you know, this is what we've got. I came back the next morning and sitting in front of the monitors was the head of MTV, the head of VH1, Guneman Murray, and I don't know, a bunch of other people. And they were all slapping each other on the back saying, look what we invented. Look at how great we are. This is so incredible. This opens up the whole thing. And oh my God, this is great. So, I don't know. And of course, we got no credit for it whatsoever. It was all their idea. And um, reality TV was born. Um, I think there's a special place in hell that I will be relegated to for having invented reality TV. So anyway, so I did the first season of The Real World in New York. You know, work-wise, things were going along okay. And in 1992, the contract, the IA contract was up. And Local 52 went to negotiate, and the producers said, we won't negotiate. We refuse to negotiate. I don't know all the reasons why. I only have conjecture. I really don't know for sure why they wouldn't negotiate. The rumor was is that many of the production houses from L.A., many of the studios, felt that they had two choices all the time. They could either do the cheap version with Neighbor, or they could do the expensive version with the IA. And that they missed that because there were a lot of films that they couldn't afford the quote IA way, right? Which just is inside, I have to tell you a story. A production member once said to me about 10, 12 years ago that if you do a $15 million movie, the crew costs $1.5 million. You do a $100 million movie, the crew costs $1.5 million. The crew cost is insignificant compared to the other costs of the movie. And that is what they're arguing about. They're arguing about pennies. I don't know if it's true, but it sounds it sounded right to me anyway at the time. What happened was eventually is that uh, Local 52 uh, and the other IA locals in New York went to IA International and said, you know, would you uh, find out why they won't negotiate with us? They won't even come to the table. And it was six months, eight months after the contract expired, something like that. The IA came back and said, they want huge givebacks. And if you're not prepared to do that, they're not going to come to the table. So at first, everybody said, no, we're not doing it. They'll, they'll come eventually. So like most people, I was out of work for four or five months, maybe, something like that at that point. And so I called... Um, uh, the Buneman Murray people in L.A. So I heard a rumor that they were doing the next season in L.A. And their offices were in L.A. So Anyway, I talked to a bunch of them and they said, look, we'd love for you to come to L.A. and do it, but you have to do it as a local. I said, fine. And uh, I went to work on Real World, uh, uh, you know, season two, which was in 90, 
93. It was in the, started in January of 93. This time I was much fancier in terms of, I got all these uh, PZMs that look like light switches. And I had all the cables hidden and I put in a carpenter to, you know, make it all look pretty and all this stuff. And I had, again, I had a mixer for them. And, but we also had, there was no more uh, cabled cameras. There would be three cameras all the time in the house, handheld, and they would have video transmitters so that the producers could sit in the garage with their uh, mixers and stuff like that, and they could uh, see whatever was going on. Each camera had their own Comtech transmitter at, the, at a different frequency, and they had three Comtech receivers taped up on the wall in the garage with big antennas, stuff like that, you know, running. And uh, so they could hear what the cameras were hearing. And then, so there was a sound in with each camera. And then when the kids wanted to go out, they had to fill out a form. It was like a schedule in advance. So they could figure out how many crews they needed. And sometimes we needed, you know, six or seven camera crews a day. And they'd bring in additional cameras, additional sound people. And, you know, I, I, I hired crews. I kept the equipment working. I you know, made sure we had batteries and all the stuff. And then I also went out and, and you know, mixed a bunch of it myself. You know, sometimes we only needed, you know, two crews. So I would do one of the crews. I did that for like uh, five, six months, something like that. Um, and I thought that I was going to move to LA. I had the rest of my equipment sent out. I moved to a, a housing complex that I was renting month by month that had two pools. So on e Easter break, my wife and kids came out and they saw two pools. Oh my God, we're in heaven. We rented bikes driving along the uh, promenade in Venice and by the beach. And they all voted. They said, yeah, let's do it. Let's live in LA. This is like heaven. I also hooked up with a commercial producer. She called me once and said, listen, I need an LA crew to do some Burger King commercials in LA. And I said, well, I do. I'm in LA. She said, great. And that's how I met Phil Palmer. Hmm. Actually, no, I had met Phil Palmer once before. He thirded on a movie for Tom Nelson. And I went to visit Tom earlier um, in LA. But that's how I met Phil. And Phil boomed for me on these Burger King commercials. And we went to New Orleans. We went to Tampa, Florida, and we did a bunch in LA and stuff like that. So, uh, and if he couldn't do it, he, he got me somebody to cover. And then I got a call from a woman uh, saying that she wanted me to come to New York to do the Babysitter's Club, six episodes of the Babysitter's Club. So I figured, okay, pack it all up, drive back to New York, and uh, I'll do this, and then we'll move to LA. So I went and I did six episodes of the Babysitter's Club, which was, I don't know, two months job, something like that. And... Um, I got a job doing a uh, pilot for uh, Gene Wilder called The Eligible Dentist. And uh, after that, I got a pilot for Cosby doing the Cosby Mystery Series. So I ended up basically working constantly through 93 when everybody else was having a hard time. I worked practically nonstop in 93. And I was back in New York. You know, we lived in... Uh, Piermont, it's like 15 miles north of George Washington Bridge. So it sounds like you're starting to move into more narrative television at this point, like Law & Order. Yeah, I, I started working on Law & Order in, in uh, July of 2000, 
two. I was doing uh, some of the work with um, Third Watch. I did a lot of Third Watch, second unit. Mm. I boomed a little bit on it, heard it on it, did stuff on it. Um, but once you get back to New York in the mid-90s, you're beginning this transition away from commercials? In the 90s, I tried my best to stop working in the film business. By about 94 or 5, I, I, I sold a lot, a lot of my equipment. I just had had it. I just felt it, you know. What were you going to do? I opened up a healing school with my wife. We are doing um, energetic healing, hands-on healing. I taught in France and Switzerland and Finland. We went many times to different countries in Europe to teach. It was a great, wonderful, fabulous experience for me, but I didn't make it much money. Mm. So more and more, I had to take jobs. That's how I met Peter Schneider. I, I, um, I went to work for him as his third. We became friends pretty quickly, and I did a number of different things with Peter. Ed Novick, who I got in the union and who used to boom for me, um, was doing a movie called uh, For the Love of the Game with uh, Kevin Costner. Ed called me and said, you want a third for me? And I said, you know, I could only do it for like six weeks because I knew I, had to, I was going back to Europe to teach. But we needed money. So when I got offered Law and Order, I said to my wife, look, if I take this job, we're never going to see each other. Because all I'm going to want to do is come home and sleep. She said, we need the money. So I did. So I, I went to work on Law and Order. I was there for six years. And in essence, since 2002... I worked basically over 2,000 hours a year, every year for the last 20 years, doing a lot of television. I did one movie. I did uh, Date Night. And I did, uh, Don Scardino directed a thing for Comedy Central. We did 10 episodes for a thing called Big Lake, which he's my favorite director in the world to work for. I, I love him. Why is that? Don Scardino was an actor. He was on Broadway. He was in movies. So he knew actors very well, but he really, really studied everything. Hmm. He was constantly saying, what does that Zoom do? What does that camera do? What happens when you do this and when you do that? He became a student of, of shooting. And even the last time I worked with him was like 10 years ago. He'd already been directing for 25 years. He was still asking constantly, how does this work? What does that do? Um, and he knew everybody's job, everybody's job. I never met a director who knew everybody's job, including mine. Usually, they know everybody's job except the sound person. He even knew my job. He really understood. And if I said to him, Don, are we taking this scene to this point? He said, why? I said, well, if we are, then I'll stash my He said, oh, okay, we'll stop before that. I said, no, I can stash my He said, no. If it, just by having me ask made him just say, we'll just cut before that. And we'll do that as a separate setup. He was funny. He told jokes constantly. He was very insightful. Um, he talked to everybody equally. And he's just a nice man and really good at his job. Um, how many people can you say that about? Yeah. I mean, Barry Levinson, who I worked for doing the Bernie Madoff movie, is a brilliant director. Um, there's a sequence in uh, the film that I did with him um, where uh, De Niro had asked um, 
Barry, because Barry and his son wrote the script. They wanted a scene where you could see Madoff doing his sales pitch, that he thought it really wasn't in the film where you saw Bernie Madoff be Bernie Madoff. And so Barry designed this scene, which takes place in a nightclub in, in Florida. And there's a live band. And Barry insisted on having the band play live, or at least the ability to play live. And we all tried to talk him out of it, and he said no. It's brilliant. It's just brilliant filmmaking. I'm very proud that I worked on that film. I take that sequence of where what he did with a, a live uh, band, and that's one of the things that I show students. Hmm. Really well edited, very well thought out. When he first tried to explain it to me, I thought, this man's nuts. He will never pull this off. But he did. So how, so how did you make it work? We had a, um, a truck come in with a Pro Tools rig. And they have a fiber optic cable uh, that went to a rack on the set. And the rack had, I don't remember, probably 25 inputs or something like that. You know, some with preamps, some with instrument ends, whatever. It was a four-piece combo. It was a piano, drums, bass, and uh, saxophone. We recorded two takes. Barry said, we'll use the second take. Um, the second take we used basically when they were, you know, the band was way in the distance. All the close-ups are close-ups of the band, like fingers on the on the um, the bass or fingers on the on the sax, fingers on the keyboard, drumsticks on the drum. He did that live, but when he did that, there was no dialogue. Mm. Every time there was dialogue, there was no music at all, except way in the distance when where you saw the band and Daniel's talking, and it's playback. And he and Barry had this all in his head. He 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 couldn't explain it. You know, he couldn't create a shot list or anything like that. He just did it. I mean, you know, he was seventy-five or something like that when we shot it. He's still making movies. But it's brilliant, you know. And where in your mind does the sound department fit into the filmmaking process? I think that's a really complicated question. Um, here's the rub. I have been, uh, my idea at this point for me is that I, I'm going to try and get a teaching job, teach like one or two days a week, and then I would retire from, from being on production. That's my goal anyway. I haven't had any luck so far, but it's, I've only been out of work two weeks, so this is just the just beginning. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about what, what you just asked me. You know, what does the sound department really do? Where, what is our goal, where we fit in. I have uh, a Scorpio recorder, a CL-16, actually I have two CL-16, an 888, and a 688. Hmm. On my card, I have an 888 and a Scorpio, and I run the 888 with a 128 gigabyte card all the time. Hmm. I turn it on in the morning and I turn it off at the end of the day. So that if anything happens, I don't record or it doesn't record or this or that, whatever, the 888 is the backup. We were the first network show to continuously do Frame.io for a whole season. The idea with Frame.io is that you roll, as soon as you cut, within seconds, it's, it's start to upload. And within minutes, it's completely uploaded and in sync. Mm-hmm. All the tracks, all the picture, 
everything. You know, it's supposed to replace all the dailies people. It's supposed to replace all this other stuff. There are still a lot of problems with it. Um, but eventually, for the last three, four months of a 10-month job, we got it to work. I spent a lot of time working on this. I would come in late at night. I'd come in days off. I would. I brought in extra guys to come in, all to make this work. And I kept saying to my producers, why am I doing this? Why am I making this work? You know, you don't need this. And they, for a long time, they just said, well, you know, look, work it out. If you can't make it work, it's fine. And then finally, Cotty um, Johnston, who I worked for, she was the one who hired me originally in the original Law and Order. So this was my 13th year of working for Cotty Johnston because um, I did other shows with her too. She came down to the set one day and said, you know the friend Mario stuff? I said, yeah. She said, I need to make it work. I said, really? She said, yeah. For you, you got it. And then I just really, you know, buckled down and, you know, pulled all the rabbits out of my ass and made it work. We are doing uh, metadata, which means that every track has to be armed, every track has to have a name, Every uh, role has to be properly organized and named and numbered. Um, one of my favorite emails I ever got, I, I was I got an email from a production assistant about two, three years ago saying, you sent us two sound reports, because I've been emailing sound reports for like eight years now. Right. You, sent, you sent us two sound reports with the same number. You, you have to resend it. And so I wrote back an email saying, take the second one, print it out, cross it out with a pen, write the new number. Goodbye. <laughs> and I sent a copy of that to Kari, and she couldn't stop laughing because it was like they couldn't conceive of that. I had to resend it because I had the wrong number on it. That that should be my job, that I couldn't possibly... It's like, how could you possibly send a, this with the wrong number? It's like, don't you realize the hardship you're creating for us? And so I'm a bookkeeper. My job is being a bookkeeper. My job is gathering sound and being a bookkeeper. But, the, but there must be more to it than that. When I took this last job that I did, called, it was called Bold. It's a CBS show. Mm -hmm. um, Cotty set this show up to work 50 hours a week. That that was going to be the goal. Mm. We worked some weeks, we worked 47 hours for five days of work. For the last two years, she gave me a four-person crew. We had days where we worked six hours. Went home. We shut the day's work. Good. Boom, goodbye. Mm. It was mostly a studio show. We didn't shoot on location that much. You know, of course, we would always pick the coldest and worst days to shoot on location. You know, right. it's raining and it's, you know, 37 degrees out. Let's go to location. You know, but that's, you know, it's always been the case. Anything time I've ever done a TV show. But if I had to do a show, this was the easiest show in New York. And still, I would fight for things. I'd make them turn shit off. I shoes, I would put up a sound blanket, I would put duvetine on a table, I would um, 
do all the things that we do to make it sound better. And I had to really sort of look at myself in the mirror a bunch of times and say, why? Why are you doing this? I wouldn't get fired if there was shoe noise. I wouldn't get fired if there was this or that. But every once in a while, I would get like a, like a, an inkling. Um, in the second season, we got a new showrunner who hated processed sound. And he loved bangs and clicks and stuff like that and mumbles and drops and stuff like that. He loved it. So they would go to the mix and he would sit in the mix and they would play the stuff. And a lot of times he would say to him, I hate that. Didn't sound that bad when I heard the mix. Play me Larry's mix. And they'd play and he said, good, use Larry's mix, throw that other shit away. And when I heard that, it sort of motivated me. I went, wow, okay. Somebody's listening and appreciates something that I'm doing. So it, I did it. I worked hard, a lot, very hard, you know, to make it sound good. So where do you find your artistic passion in the work? The passion that Jerry Brook taught me about in 1976, 1975, I have only had a chance to use a number of times in my career. When I did uh, The Night Up, which is the show I won the Emmy for, mm -hmm. I got hired at the last minute because the mixer who was supposed to do it dropped out because his father was dying. Mm -hmm. So they sent me in to see Stephen Zaley the next day. And um, they were shooting a test for something and shooting in a studio in Brooklyn. And then at lunchtime, Stephen and I went outside and sat on, uh, you know, like on the porch of the studio outside by the river. and. Uh, he interviewed me. I was there for an hour. I don't think we talked more than 12 minutes. Most of the time we sat there in silence. Hmm. And I was okay with that. It was, I never felt that way before. I thought, you know what? I don't need this job. I don't need this thing. It sounds like an interesting project, but I didn't know much about it. You know, I looked him up on IMDb and I said, wow, you know, guys directed six, seven, uh, major motion pictures, he won Academy Award as a writer, you know, he's the real Hollywood deal. But I wasn't clamoring to get the job. I, I want I interviewed him more than he interviewed me. You know, I said to him, what do you want from a son? He wanted everybody worried, okay. What else do you want? You know, and um, the thing that got me was his he wanted to tell the story through sound effects. We wanted the music of the film to be sound effects. And that got my interest. Hmm. I thought, but that's something I could sink my teeth into. We did like 70 wild tracks, you know, in the course of the shoot. In addition, we got a lot of what we called sound effects in sync on top of that. With times we'd get to a location and he would hand me his list and I would get my list together and it sent out Gary Silver, my third, give him the 688, say, here, go. And, uh, you know, he'd come back. Whenever he came back, he'd go out with a, you know, a location person. And if he was gone for an hour or two, whatever it took, that some of it, I, you know, we would do, you know, I would do it. And on the first unit, we would quiet everybody down for sound effect. But a lot of times it was just Gary. Hmm. They used, I think, every sound effect I gave them, except for a golf ball. He wanted a golf ball effect. I think we ever used it because we never saw a golf I don't know why he wanted a golf ball effect, but he did. But he used it. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a seven or eight part series. 
They spent like six months doing the sound editing. Six months. Who does six months of sound editing? And it was great. If, you know, if somebody says, is there any sound that you record that you're part of? They say, yeah, that show. But it wasn't me. In other words, I gave them all the raw materials, but they used it. So what's my place in this process now? It's the opposite of when I started. You understand, when I started, radio mics didn't work. So nobody expected you to do that. It wasn't a question of like, why are all the actors? It was, nobody would ask the sound to wire all the actors. They knew that was stupid. Radio mics didn't work, so why would you want to wire all the actors? When I started, we had one track. What I gave them was what they had. They would check aboard the dialogue, like, right? You know, he speaks, then she speaks. And he, so they'd cut it up. They'd t cut the one track up and make it two track, just to be able to process two voices separately or three voices or whatever. But essentially, it was my mix. They couldn't change it. They didn't really have ISOs. They didn't have stuff. And I, so I learned how to you know, EQ on the fly. You know, I could sit with a mixer. I could take the, you know, boost the mid range or take the highs out or bring them in while we're rolling. And uh, I was very proud of being able to do that. I still do that. When you switched to multi-track, did that change anything in your mixing? The first digital machine I used was a Fosex PD6. At first, I was a little overwhelmed having so many tracks, to listen to so many tracks, and then I realized that's stupid. I've been listening to all these mics anyway for years, but I've all been listening to them as a mix, so I, that's what I've done. That's what I continue to do. I never listen to the ISOs as ISOs. I don't care if I have 20 mics. I listen to my mix, and I can tell you that John's mic, when I open it up, does this. So it's going to sound the same on the ISO as it's going to sound the same in the mix. It either works or it doesn't. You know, and, I, and especially if you do it for a while, you get very quick. Even if you open up, you know that that's that mic. Hmm. So when they say cut, you say, okay, I have to change it, fix it, do something, whatever. Because that mic bothers me for the one time I need it. Because at first, that's what everybody said to me. Oh, how do you listen to all six tracks? And I thought, oh, I have to listen to all six tracks. It's hard. But I don't. I never did. And sometimes I've had sound editors say to me, you're not listening to the ISOs, are you? And I say, no, I'm not. Oh, because this and this was on the ISO. I said, well, it's not there on the mix track because I didn't use it. <laughs> so I said to the same, I went back and said, you're not listening to the mix then, are you? So it changed over the years because I realized that the post people get stuck. The editors are using the mix track for, for to create their first cut. If they think that there's an issue with the sound, that can be changed quickly, they'll quickly go through an ISO and then just slap it in, hmm. you know, just so that when they show the first cut to the producers, you know, the sound is sort of more or less cohesive and they, you know, can say, see, there's no issue there, it's there. If it's not on the mix track, it's here. If they're all not on roughly on the same level, they can't do that. It sounds odd, you know, because all they're doing is slapping it in, they're not changing the levels, they're mm -hmm. not EQing it, they're just popping it in. It took me a while to understand that, that that's what, you know, that's what they're expecting. So if I make the mix track much harder than the ISOs or vice versa, they can't do that. They can't take the mix track, which is what they're using for dailies, which is what they're using for their first cut, and uh, make the producer's cut work 
and that's a problem for them. At first, I went, you know, my first attitude is, well, fuck them. But I realized that that's really not a good idea, at least not in television. So I have to figure out some way that it works for them and for me. So I, I use it mostly at the same level, you know, because a lot of times, too, I'm mixing the, the, the trim parts. Mm-hmm. You know, I know a number of guys are saying now that they're putting all the ISOs in post-fade because they're mixing in the trim parts. But that, too, I think is unfair to the editors. Mm-hmm. You miss something, they don't have it. Right. It's not anywhere. It's not on the mix track. It's not on the ISOs. So I did a scene where uh, it's a conference room. And the conference room is in a, literally a plastic bubble. It's, it's like this, like your worst nightmare in terms of sound. Everything pinged. It was like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir shrunk into an eight by 10 room. It just is like, you know, you know the Mormon Tabernacle mm-hmm. has perfect acoustics. So if you drop a pin, a pin on one side, you can hear on the other side. Right. Well, this is that, but there's six people in this room in a conference table that creaks. And the woman who has all the dialogue is wearing a turtleneck. And the only place I can put it is up here and this mic yeah. sounds like shit. Yeah. And there's reflections everywhere. So here's the scene now, okay? So I did, I wired everybody. And George Young, who has boomed for me the last three years on this, I know George for many, many years, and I was so grateful when I finally got him to come. It took me two years to get him to, to I had to book him two years in advance <laughs> to get him to come to this job, but I got him. And he did the last three years with me. And George is like underneath getting a few words here. And then he goes to the other side of the table and gets a few words there. And he's like, you know, picking up pieces. And we would talk between takes. They say, well, listen, can you get this word or this guy before you go over there? Okay. And I mix the scene. So I get a call from Post saying, listen, we listen to all the radio mics and it, it's not working. I said, did you listen to the mix? He said, yeah, but how did you get that out of those radio mics? I said, I didn't. I mixed it out of all those microphones, including the boom. You want this to work, you got to use the boom. Otherwise, you got nothing. You ain't going to get it out of those radio mics. It's just, you know, and I gave him this list of what was wrong, you know, the costuming and the lighting and the reflections and the table and the thing, you know. I said, that's what we're up against. But yes, the sound is usable, but you have to listen to it. When we did the the, the uh, Bernie Madoff film, there's a, a scene where this woman is walking downstairs and She's explaining to the FBI, who's right behind her, she's talking over one shoulder and then the other shoulder, back and forth as she's walking downstairs. Barry didn't want to rehearse anything, so I put a mic on her here, and it didn't work at all. So I said to Barry, I need a second to put another mic on her. And he looked at me like, yeah, go fuck yourself. And so I did. I put two mics on her. I put one on each shoulder. And then we did it afterwards, and I saw the film, and that's what they used. They used, you know, she talks this way, she talks that way, and I mixed it for that. I feel good that I could do that. It's not genius, it's not amazing, but it's something, you know, that I know how to do in my trade. And despite the fact that I feel like a bookkeeper a lot, that so much of my day is filled with notes and revising notes and, you know, putting different names on and all this other stuff. I'm still thinking about those choices. I don't always verbalize it, but I know I'm thinking about it. I'm I'm saying, you know, this doesn't sound right. I need to make this sound different. You know, I need to go to the DP and ask him, you know, can you just throw a rag in that corner? 
it's so why it's not doing anything i see it was doing something for me just take a black throw in the corner okay and they'll do it you know you develop a relationship with somebody you know so you'll get a, like a, a an eight by eight or ten by ten rag hanging from a you know a stand and is it earth shattering no but maybe it takes a little of the curse off of the room which sounds so dreadful you know what about using perspective in your miking you know keeping the wides wide and the close-up sounding close when you get into the storytelling like as the picture gets closer the sound gets closer that storytelling that's when the sound is the seasoning on the on the on the meal that's that's the seasoning that that's what the DP was talking about when he said you do the seasoning. That's the seasoning. We want to be storytellers. We do it through microphones. When it really works, that's what we do. When we were doing Law and Order, it was the first time I realized that you need to hear the room. Mm-hmm. When we would shoot like in the precinct, like in the lieutenant's office with the Patha. Mm-hmm. Boomer operators would say to me, you know, like, uh, well, let me use a 416 or this. And I say, no, put on a chef's and play it wider. Don't get so tight. And they say, why? Don't, aren't I supposed to be on the frame line? I said, no, you're supposed to be wherever it is that makes it sound the best you can. Mm. I don't need more volume. I need more room. I need it to sound like they're in space, like they exist as a person. Doing Law and Order made me more aware of that than ever. I, I don't know why I never noticed it so much before, but in, on Law and Order, I really made an effort oftentimes to get the guys to play the sound wider, not tighter. Yeah. One of the things that I, I've said to producers every time they tell me to, to wire a bit all the time is that we have two ears and we listen to sound in space. We don't listen to sound by putting our ear up to somebody's chest. We hear them in space so that we know where they are. We know what else is there just from the sound. I mean, it's obvious if there's a train or a babbling brook, but it's also different if they're in a hotel room versus a car. It sounds different because you know the space sounds different. Hmm. I mean, it's another thing. I always have a pet peeve of mine. People wire people in a car. That's horrendous. Just stash a mic in a car, you know. What is the mic? It's like, you know, 18 inches away from them at best, maybe it's closer. Right. But at least you have a sense of space. Doesn't matter what mic you put in there. If you stash a mic in a car, you know they're in a car because it's a sound. It's a sp- very specific sound, a car. I mean, different cars are different, but basically it's a car versus not a car. Hmm. All cars have a sound. It's different than an office space. It's different than a street. It's different than a bedroom. It's a car. On this last job, we did a lot of green screen car stuff. Mm. Um, and we put 250s in, in the, the guys would sit in the back seat. So in the, the front seat had these little pockets like the back of front seats have. And we put two goosenecks with 50s in those pockets, miking these guys, you know, so the mic is, I don't know, two feet away, two and a half feet away, whatever it is. And that's how we mic the car, you know? And the only time it was different is if they took the front seats out, then we'd use two booms with 50s, imitated what we just did. And after a while, they knew 
like you know they would often ask me do you have to warn anybody but they, they someone would come up to me and said oh do you have to warn me? oh no i know it's a car we, we don't warn people in the car i said yes that's true we don't but even when we did tow rigs i you know did more or less the same thing you know i i hide mics in the visor or something you talked about eqing on the board but what about choosing different microphones and the effects of using those different mics um <clears throat> You know, I not only pick out boom mics for specific actors, but I pick out uh, Liz for specific actors. Sam Waterston sounded best on a soundtrack. He had a huge voice. Mm. If he had a two-person scene, we'd often boom the other person like eight inches from them and Sam from three feet in order to balance the two, make them at least sound like they're in the same room. But if I had to put a lavalier on him, that was his lavalier. Um, Jerry Orbach didn't sound that great on the soundtrack. He sounded better on the sanctum. It's all trial and error, but eventually you figure it out. You say, okay, this is the best for this actor in this situation. When I started doing um, Fringe, I started that show with Frankie Grassi today as my boom operator. Mm. And they built a set, which was the entire, one set was the entire stage. Um, multi-level set. It was a laboratory, the mad scientist laboratory. And uh, we had a lot of scenes right away where they're going up the set, down the step, far, coming near, you know, doing little experiments, walking around. So it's like people moving in all these different directions. And uh, Frankie said to me, give me a 416. I said, okay. So I gave him a 416. And almost immediately, we both were like, our eyes just sort of popped open. That set was designed for that microphone. I'm sure they didn't know that that was it. But any other microphone, we, and we tried any other microphone in that set, never sounded anywhere near as good. It was, it was as though like you created magic. That set was made for that microphone. And... The one nice thing about a 416 anyway is that you can be further away f from the talent and still make it sound closer because of its strange frequency response. Mm -hmm. 416 is also the only microphone that I know that really matches with the absurdity of radio mics so that you can cut back and forth with them, especially something like a Sankin. You can match a 416 and a Sankin with very little problems. So we started using 416 a lot. And I have, I had, two 416s, but it wasn't it wasn't my quote go-to microphone until that job. And I thought, wow. Really, I tried share, I tried all kinds of microphones on the phone. Nothing sounded like a 416. When when Sam Perry took over for Frank, he had boom for me on Law and Order, and he was the one who pushed me to get 416. So when I said to him it's a 416 set, he said, finally, you listen to me. <laughs> And he would take a, a 416 and do things with it that nobody else could. He could take footsteps out with a 416 with somebody walking across. You know, the third would say, I have to pad their feet. Sam would say, why? I said, well, because the noise. He said, I'll take you. And he would. I never knew how he did it. I, was, I wasn't on set, but he would. They were still on mic and they, the footsteps would not disappear, but they were significantly quieter. He was made magic with that microphone. And what are you looking for from your boom operator? Okay, so here's, here's my thing. 
is a John Hurt's thing. Okay. The mixer's job is to get the next job. The boom operator's job is to make it sound good. The third's job is to do everything else. Okay? I mean, you can't get it more simplified than that, but that there's a truth in that. If you have a good boom operator and it's their job to make it sound good and they know that that's their job, they will watch and they'll say, wire this one, stash for that one, I'll boom these two. And if they're experienced enough, you say, terrific. The other thing, once I had George on, now, remember, forever doing TV, I wired everybody myself 90% of the time. I stashed all the mics myself 90% of the time. George would never let me stash a mic. He'd say, we needed this, such and such a mic for the stash. And we had, you know, we had a judge mic, we had a witness mic, we had, you know, different mics that we had worked out worked best for different places in the courtroom. And uh, either George would just go get it himself or I would have the third bring it to him or I would bring it to him. And he did it. Do you think your own history of booming has made you a better mixer? You know, yes. I explained to thirds many times that I'm a better mixer because I boomed. Because I can, uh, as soon as I hear something, I say, you got to be careful of the head turn. Or when the guy bends down to pick up the keys, you know, pull the mic back, and, you know, so you can get underneath him. Um, hit him in the head or try the chest. I know those things because I've been the one holding the stick. So, yes, that makes me a better mixer. But the thing that it's very hard to explain to thirds is if you have a real good boomer operator, they're not just booming, they're running the set. You know, you, I'm sure you had that with Greg. Yeah, oh, definitely. He runs the set. He represents the sound department. Everything that happens on that set, he's aware of. And how do you, how do you teach that to somebody? The only way to do that is to have them there because it's not just saying it's a problem. It's saying it's a problem, we need to do X. Mm. It's a carpet, it's a piece of tape, it's a thing, it's an air conditioning duct, it's a whatever, you know. We had an air conditioning duct where George had them tape a piece of cardboard over the duct. I didn't know about it until if it was done. You know, somebody said to is the cardboard over the duct working for you? I went, oh, I don't know, let me ask George. You know, he had he arranged that. I, I wasn't involved in it. I'm thrilled not to be involved in it. You know, how many years I spent taking off my headphones, running to the set, saying, what's that noise? Where's it coming from? Oh, it's that. Oh, can we put a thing on the set? The fact that George is there doing it is, is such a godsend for me, you know. To have an experienced boomer of, of, of any caliber means a world to us, not just because they can boom it, because they can manage the set. You know, and to explain that to a third, that's tough. And speaking of the utility position and, and being a sometimes catch-all position, how do you see their role? All right, so here, here's what I have to say. I have a third who is transferring SD cards to a hard drive, who is doing paperwork, who is doing expendables, who is putting out the context, getting the slates set up, wiring actors, and booming. And they're saying to me, oh, this is an entry-level position. 
it's insane. You know, we need a, a, tra a trainee program for the center phone. There's no way to train people, especially as we get into all these TV shows. There's no way to train them to be able to come in and work immediately. Because if I put them, if I put somebody new and say, boom, these five people over here, the camera operator will take about 10 minutes before he wants to kill them. Hmm. And 15 minutes later, he'll want to kill me. We had a guy, they, they sent us from the hall, who was in the sound department, very nice man. He came in and we had him booming within 10 minutes. And he was in at least 40% of the time, the first couple of setups. And after we stopped, I went over and apologized to the, the operator, I went and apologized to the DP, I went and apologized to the director. And I thought to myself, how many people do I have to apologize to get, you know, to just to get through today? We had him in for one day. Nice kid. Very, very nice, wanted to learn, very eager. But there was no fucking way he could come in and do this on the level that we were, were expecting someone to be able to come in and do it. You know, which is the other thing, too. When I started, it was assumed that one boomer fighter was going to cover the whole scene. It was never an assumption like, well, if I have a hard time, I'll bring in another boom. It wasn't, it didn't exist, even if there was a third there. Hmm. It's like, well, the boomer operator does it. I, I, I worked on a, a movie with Peter um, Schneider, and he got John Balls to boom for him. And I came on as a third for about a month. And uh, John Ball said, uh, you know, let's get a fish a boom. And he was the first one I ever started. He, he would put it in a, uh, a 2K uh, light stand. And um, we took it with us on the truck. We took it with us on location. And he was amazing with it. You know, the speed, when it's working right, when the arm is, you have to really know the arm and set it correctly. But when mm -hmm. The arm is working right and the counterweights are working right. The speed that you can get this thing to fly without it making any noise at all mm. is amazing. John Bowles, he's talking about stuff, right? John Bowles said that when he was first learning, he'd been doing this since he's 18. He was like 60 then. The first thing they said to him was, you have to learn what your moment on the set is. There's a moment to put down a carpet. There's a moment to get out mm. the boom. There's a moment. He said, if you're too early, you're gonna piss people off. If you're too late, you're gonna make them furious. You have to find the moment. At first I didn't understand exactly what he was saying to me, but we would take the arm off the set and put it against the wall, get out the stand, set it up, and just sort of put it near it, and just stand there. And I'd say, now he said, no, yeah, not yet. I would just stand there. And you know, they're setting up lights and cameras and all this stuff like that, and then, at, there was a moment and he would see and he'd say, now. And like, I'd reel the stand and he picked the thing and boom, the arm would be there. And it happened to us in three different occasions where a grip would come up to me and say, it's amazing. How do you, how do you figure out a location where there's a, a fissure boom already there? It's been here the whole time. I went, really? I said, yeah, I mean, you know, I, you got a big, huge chandelier here. I thought you guys were going to like destroy it with a boom pole, but you don't. You, you have the fissure boom is up against it, but you know. Chandelier, you're not going to do anything to it. I went, it is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> and it was like they thought it had always been there. Like, it's that perception. 
Can you find that moment on a set to do anything, whether it's stash a mic or whatever? How important are the relationships with the other departments? I had a um, uh, third who's a very experienced guy. I mean, he's been doing this like 15 years. He came in third for me. He said to me, we need to order AC cable. I said, for what? He said, to make essential cords. I said, no, we don't. So where are we going to get it from? I said, from the electric department. He said, well, I don't know any electric department. I said, come with me. So I introduced him and I said, tell him what you want. And he told him, he said, all right, come with me. And he, 10 minutes later, he came back with exactly what he wanted to order. I said, relationships. You've been doing this 15 years. You don't understand relationships? Hmm. The prop people do it. The wardrobe people, the grips, electricians. I got a buzz. I got a hum. That light singing, all this stuff. You make relationships. I give them batteries. You know, I mean, we don't have that many things we can do for them. We give them batteries. I keep a box of tissues up in my car. Everybody in the crew knows that. So if they need a tissue, they come to me and they take a tissue with. Because you're working with fiefdoms. Every department's their own fiefdom. And they're all like clanning together. You know, the electrics don't want the grips to get involved in this or that and vice versa. And the prop people have their own world. And dressers and the offset dressers, that's a whole other world. You know, and the art department and, you know, all these different things. Can you, as a sound mixer, as a sound department, get all of those people to help you? It took me 30 years to understand that. Hmm. First that I need it and then how to do it. How to get the production designer to want to put up a picture so I could put uh, fiberglass batting behind it to take some of the curse out of the echoey room. Mm. Can I do that? You know, can I get her? Can we, instead of putting up a plastic ceiling, can we use muslin instead? You know? Yeah, I mean, all those things. I sit in a production meeting, so I, I, you know, I send emails, I talk to them. Production designer and I are, you know, are good friends. Why? Because I wanted her to be, you know, I tell her she would, we'd do a new set and she would send me an email saying, you know, is it, how's it photographing? And I would tell her. The producer would come to the set off and, you know, Connie Johnson, the first person she'd come to me and she'd say, you know, how are we doing? And I would tell her what the director's doing, not doing, how things are going. So, okay. But it takes years to cultivate that, you know, and, and first of all, you have to know that you need it or you want it, you know. Is Bull coming back? No. So what do you think? Do you think that you're going to try to land on something well, else, or is this... No, 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 no. They gave me a, they gave me a, a, a retirement cake. Oh. <laughs> no. Um, no, I, I honestly, uh, if, if I could land a teaching gig in a... You know, I, I have this pie-in-the-sky idea that... I'm going to be able to give classes at Local 52. We've done three days of boom classes in the last five years. But we did three days, which is already three day, more days than had happened in the last 40 years before that. Right. I have this idea that somehow we're going to be able to set up um, eight, let's say eight or 10 days of classes with applicants that go over booming, that go over what the third is expected, that go over the rudiments of mixing, that go over uh, set etiquette, 
We need eight years to do that, but I would settle for eight days. Um, that's my wish is to never mix another show. Yeah. I don't do that anymore. I'm retired. <laughs> I just want to teach. <laughs> Hopefully that'll happen. Yeah. I think it's a great idea. I hope I haven't talked you to death. No, no. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks, Larry. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.